Good afternoon, everyone, and a very warm welcome to this session of the Durham Book Fair. I'm Susan Frank, Principal of St. Aidan's College and Chair of Durham City of Sanctuary. And I am delighted to have the privilege today of sitting with both Guwali Basarie, thank you, and Tom Brooks, who are going to talk to you about their work, about their lives indeed, and their experiences. And I suspect that the discussion will roam quite widely, because of course both of them have written in ways that are at the same time deeply personal and point to global issues which affect not only people in the UK, but of course around the world. So I'm going to start by asking you, you actually wrote a special piece for this book fair, but we decided that there is so little time available to us, this can be made freely available publicly, and instead, Guwali is going to talk to us about his experience. Excellent, thank you. Um, good afternoon. Thank you for being here. Is it Sunday or Saturday? Sunday? <laughs> it's Sunday. <laughs> Sunday. Great, thanks for giving up your Sunday afternoon. Um, and it's wonderful to be in Durham. It's a beautiful place. The weather is great. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to talk to you, actually. So this is um, based on The Lightless Sky. So The Lightless Sky is the book that I've written about uh, my journey from Afghanistan to the UK. And this was a special piece which was mainly focused on my arrival to Britain. So to give you a perspective and a summary, uh, it's 110,000 words. The book is 110,000 words. And this writing is about 2,000 words. But i probably do it in like 10 minutes or so, mm -hmm. or maybe less. So I was born in Afghanistan uh, during the Taliban era, and there's a lot about the Taliban in the book, in the perspectives the world's have of them, and uh, how our life was, according to my parents, and how things were in Afghanistan. Uh, I was born into a family where my father was a doctor, uh, my uncles were businessmen, I grew up to be a shepherd, so I spent mm. most of my time with my grandparents in the mountains of eastern Afghanistan, which was really beautiful, uh, from age three, four, till age seven. I started school in about 2000. Uh, I think you, uh, in Afghanistan, you start school when you're seven. It was a struggle. It was difficult because I lived such a wild life of freedom, running around ships in, in goats and, and being in the mountains, and then to, be, to have to sit in the classroom. I don't remember being bullied by the, the children, but I got used to it. And as soon as I went to my second year, unfortunately, the war, the US-led invasion happened. Mm. Uh, so my home, my country became a war zone. And, I literally lived in constant fear of being killed, or my members of my family being killed because of the, the bombings and because of the rocket attacks. And, and then when the Taliban government was, was collapsed and their regime was basically destroyed by the US and NATO, the war didn't end it. The, the struggle, the conflict continued. And uh, we tried to have a normalized life. I remember going at night with the women and the, the children to bunkers, uh, which was uh, made during the Russian invasion a few years earlier. So we lived in, in such a fear of death. Time, things became so bad that sadly members of my family were killed uh, because one of my uncles were involved in, a, in the Taliban. The Taliban was although not very democratic, but uh, mm. it, was made up of, <laughs> it was made up of ordinary people. So almost every family had somebody in the Taliban. That's how they, they govern. That's how they run the country. So one of my uncles was a part of the government. And then after their collapse, it causes a lot of problems because of briberies, because of tribalisms, and Afghanistan is a crazy place for cultural um, issues and tribal issues. So sadly, when members of my family were killed uh, by the US forces, we became the target at the age of 10 and 11 that the Taliban wanted to, to make us join them to fight, not only to take revenge, but also to fight a holy war. 
And as children growing up in Afghanistan, we were thought so much in schools about how we beat the British three times in Triangle-Afghan mm -hmm. Wars and how we beat the Russians and how we beat Alexander the Great in Genghis Khan. So there was a huge sentiment of we were some sort of superhumans. We weren't. Like, kids in Afghanistan are thought from a very young age about wars, about fighting, about conflicts, and how Afghans are warriors, and how Afghanistan is a graveyard of empires. All those things makes us become violent, makes us become fighters, and even though we are not. So unfortunately, the education system at the time was as such. So at the age of 11 or 10, even, I was willing to, to join the Taliban to fight. And also, revenge is a very central point to my identity. So I'm a Pashtun. I speak Pashto, and I follow a quote called Pashtunwali. So it's like four, four, five thousand thousand years old code of conduct, which is an unwritten code of conduct. Things like hospitality, asylum, honor, and revenge is a very central aspect of it. So in Afghanistan, the blood feels on, goes on forever. I mean, there's a saying that if you take revenge after 100 years, you have done it too quickly. But anyway, to keep it short, um, <laughs> thankfully, my mother and my grandmother and their understanding of Islam in and religious reasons as well as moral reasons that violence wasn't the answer and, and she, they certainly didn't want you to bury another of their loved ones. So they send us, essentially me and my brother, send us away to the unknown. So we were, I, I thought it was not serious. I mean, I didn't, I, even today I, I, I say my mother saved my life, but she also lost me. At the time I didn't take the situation as serious as it, it was. The journey began, it took me 12 months. I went through about 19 countries before making it to Britain. As soon as I started the journey, I was separated from my brother. I remember my mother telling me, no matter how bad it gets, don't come back, and also stay together with your brother, hold on to each other's hands. But I was in the hands and mercy of traffickers and smugglers. I was in prison in almost every country that I went through, Pakistan, Iran, Turkey, Bulgaria. I was fit into the seals of the train, had, was asked to jump from a moving train, deported back to Turkey, in prison at the age of 12. Forget being treated as a child, I wasn't even treated as a human. Across the Mediterranean, that was the hardest part of my journey. I mean, I'm summarizing very quickly, but crossing the Mediterranean was, basically I saw death on many occasions, but here I was certain I was going to die. We were packed into, into a boat of, designed for like 20 people. There were 120 of us in it. And after 48 to 50 hours, we were in the sea. Water, food, everything ran out. And the waves, it was crazy. It was really, I mean, I've never seen the sea before. It was, I was very frightened and scared. And our boat was about to capsize, and we were, we were being in the, in the sea. And I remember... Two things were keeping me going was faith and hope. And I remember having this conversation with God. You know, I don't mind dying, but not here, not like this, not in the middle of the scene. The concern in my head was that my mother will never know what has happened to me. My family will live in hope. One day I will return home, but I will never return home. So those thoughts were bothering me and making me really upset. And thankfully, we survived. We were rescued by the uh, Greek Coast Guards. And last year, 5,000 people lost their lives crossing the Mediterranean. Mm. Uh, the year before, 4,000. This year, so far, over 2,000 people or so, 3,000 now. I, those are not numbers and statistics for me. Those are human beings with real hopes, dreams, just like you and me. But unfortunately, their life has been taken away in such a tragic way. And it's our government's responsibility, our lack of responsibility for not doing enough to save lives. So we made it to Greece. There was a legal battle. We were in prison for three months. And then we were told to leave Greece within a month. And then I found out about my brother along the way that he was heading for the UK, and that's when I decided that I need to come to Britain. I went to Italy on a top of a lorry engine. Italy treated me somewhat better compared to the rest of half of the world. Made it to France, spent a very cold night uh, in Paris in a telephone box. I went back um, eight years later, nine years later, when my book was published in French. I never thought I would write a book one day and it would be published in like seven, eight languages, but 
I had a very different welcome compared to the one I had mm. the first time I was there. And I'm, that's very unfortunate. I was, the police kicked me out of the telephone box. It was snowing. It was cold. And I went to Cali. I have heard so much about the Cali jungle. Mm. Almost there. Um, it, was, <laughs> it was absolutely inhumane. I, I, it was more miserable. The misery, the smell, the, the cold. I spent about a month there and I literally felt for the last nine years or eight years I've been believing, honestly, that I was there for three months. That's how bad the condition were. The police will arrest us daily. It was pure humiliation, and we would run after lorries every night. And um, made it to the UK and to the UK and I back up a refrigerator lorry, a freezer. If the driver had put on the freezer, we would have been killed in the last leg of our journey. When I say we, I mean there was other refugees and other uh, travel companions that I had I met along the way. Made it to Britain, I felt relieved, I felt sense of freedom, hoping to meet my brother. But this was another battle. This was another journey. Mm. This was the beginning of an end, or the end of the beginning. The end of the beginning. Um, so this piece is about actually my, me arriving in the UK. Um, I was with social service. I was in custody for 24 hours with the police. I mean, getting arrested was normal because I got arrested everywhere. And I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah. it's like playing Monopoly. And you keep landing, go back to jail. And I was like, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> and also with the, the, the journey was like snakes and ladders going back and forth. So it wasn't a straightforward journey. That's why it took me a year. Mm. And uh, after going through the legal asylum process, which was really, again, a very difficult one, being interviewed by strangers for hours, uh, asking me all sorts of questions about my family, my backgrounds, and then I went through the age assessment process, which for once I thought to myself I wouldn't find anybody who would be more heartless uh, and more inhumane than the traffickers and the smugglers. I mean, they saved my life, I'm here, but if I have died, they couldn't have cared less. When I met, well, I, the reason I was thinking that, because I have, by then I haven't met social service officials. As soon as I met social service officials, actually, it's very sad that I felt like the smugglers and the aid, the traffickers, wasn't changing my identity or questioning my foundation or defining my future. Five strangers around the table after three, four hours of questioning saying to me, Gluali, you're not 13, you're too smart, you're too intelligent, you couldn't have crossed half of the world on your own, we think you're 16 and a half. At the point, I mean, I was angry, I was frustrated, I threw the papers at their, at their faces. Afterwards, I realized how it has an impact on my immigration status, it had an impact on whether I would be fostered or whether I will go to school. So if I had let them get on with it, I had let them go away with it, I wouldn't be sitting here, I'd probably be back in Afghanistan dead long time ago because the home office threatened to deport me not once or twice, more than three times uh, during that process. So things became so bad that I thought there was no point to life. For the first time, I lost hope. On the journey, I didn't lose hope in faith. But here I've been, I was safe, I was secure. But the bureaucracy, I've been seen as a criminal, as a, as a liar, as a suspect was bothering me so much. So anyhow, I managed, it took me two years to convince them or to challenge them. Um, I found my brother, which was a great news. We met each other through faith in faith. Because when I told the immigration official, I, if he could help me to find my brother, he was like, you know, there's 60 million people in Britain. I can't really find your brother. But actually they could have if I was giving him his name and date of birth, except they changed it. Um, so... After some time, I managed to, um, to move to Manchester, to move to Bolton, to live with my brother. I met my uncle after six years, which was also wonderful. And then I went to the school starting point where there were the people who understood my situation. Actually, they helped me to overturn the age dispute. Um, after some time, I managed to go to school, a secondary school, spent two years. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't thought we'll get one GCC, ended up getting 10, despite English being my fifth language. From school, I went to sixth from college, did my A-levels, now I just graduated from the University of Manchester and along the way. I've done tons of things around youth activism, youth policies, and been an ambassador and advisor to different organizations, trying to give back to society, being a useful and active citizen. I carried the Olympic torch, which was one of my greatest moments of, of pride and Britishness. 
I really feel Britain is the place where people are treated fairly, justly, and equally, and that has actually proven the fact that you know, somebody who, uh, who was smuggled into Britain in a, in a banana lorry and were able to carry the Olympic torch and play a small part in something so huge and big. And uh, next week, I'm going heading to Coventry to study my master's. I never, ever thought in my wild dreams that one day, you know, a shepherd from, from mountains in Afghanistan will be able to come to Britain and to be able to be in the position that I'm in. But I really miss my family. I really miss home. I got married last year. My mom, my family was not there. I was a special occasion. But yeah, life goes on, but it's a huge sacrifice to be a refugee. And, and ultimately, my, I've been campaigning and advocating uh, that we need to have a compassionate and humane system uh, for refugees, and we need to make it better for people to, uh, to live in dignity and, and to show them respect, no matter where they're born and who they are. And we could all contribute. I think I want people to see us, see me, and see asylum seekers and refugees, just like everyone else. But we have a very different, uh, difficult past and different past, but that doesn't mean we, can, we can't have a shared future. Yes. Sorry, that was long. No, no. Wow. Now, after 10 years in this country, which you still call a fair place, you still do not have British citizenship. And of mm. course, you, Tom, had your own journey towards British citizenship, uh, despite many of the people you encountered refusing to think of you mm. as an immigrant in any sense at all. So could you talk to us a little bit about your experience and why you have written this particular book? Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Um, and I also don't like the Home Office. Uh, so uh, so we, we, have, we, we have, have an agreement. We have, so, we have, we have uh, several things uh, in common, at least uh, certainly on that front. Um, I was somebody, uh, when I came uh, to uh, Britain uh, via uh, the United States originally, and then I, I lived for a few years in the Republic of Ireland, I wasn't looking to uh, be an immigrant. Um, I wasn't thinking about immigration stuff. I was a student, um, I got a job here, and I just wanted to crack on with that. I quite liked working in a university and, and trying to be good at my job. I wasn't really worried too much at the time about other rules because they hadn't really rubbed up against me. Things began to change in a very different way. Um, about six years ago, uh, when um, I received a, an email from my previous employer noting that uh, if I hadn't uh, sorted myself out on permanent residency, uh, indefinite leave to remain, that I was going to be fired uh, from my job and that they would not help me. They wouldn't give me legal advice. They wouldn't look through my form. They wouldn't even give me a letter saying that I would still be employed by that university if I still had permanent residency. And I thought, this is not very nice, so I did the next thing you do, which is look at the form I got to fill out um, to send into the home office. It's now over 80 pages long to have permanent residency. And in the middle of it, around page 20-something, um, it had this little box uh, about, uh, did you do this English language thing? And I thought, well, what? You know, American, you know, what's this? Um, or the citizenship test. I thought, well, what is that? So I did the next best thing you do, which is look it up online and fail it, like everyone else who's British, uh, right? So I did that. I went home, uh, uh, you know, partly distressed, thinking, you know, goodness me, here I was, not in trouble with anyone, I thought, and doing very well. And all of a sudden, my future here seemed to be in peril uh, by this. So I go home, turn on the television that night, uh, watching... Uh, uh, was it Quest BBC Question Time? Mm -hmm. And this was the night that Nick Griffin from the BNP uh, was on. And how, how kind, wonderful it was seeing everyone denounce him uh, and his views. Everyone did say in the audience and the panel about 
Well, the rules are all a bit easy to get through, but here's a variety of ways we can make it a lot more tough. And I'm watching this with a beer in hand, thinking, well, do you guys know on the television what it's actually like? None of them had come through one way or another. None had hopped on a plane from JFK Airport and flown into Manchester, which is how I got into Britain my way, or come in the way that you did. Um, none had been immigrants. None had been... You know, had to go through any of this process themselves, been on the front line themselves, yet had very strong views about how easy it was and why we need to raise the drawbridge even higher, make it even more uh, difficult. So what I did over the next few weeks was, well, of course, study. I wanted to pass this thing. I wanted to uh, stay in the country. But as I was going through, I would have my students, and then when I'd go to dinner parties, people would say things like, uh, you know, Tom, can I ask you a question? Oh, stop there. I got a question for you. <laughs> and I found out that no one knew the answer uh, to these things. When I go to dinner parties, it was a source of great amusement. So what is on uh, the citizenship test to prove that uh, you're British and you have our values and you know what it's like to be here and this kind of real bewilderment amongst a lot of people that it was like. And that was a sense my first kind of toe or better part of my foot into the water of of just what is this system that everyone seems to be very critical about, that it's not doing the right things, it's letting everybody through, and it's all not done very well, but no one seemed to know how it actually worked. No one seemed to know what the rules really were, and no one certainly seemed to care about the voices about people who were being uh, harmed, frankly, uh, by this process. So what I did, to some degree, yes, an academic project and also a bit of political journalism, was go out and interview people, um, several hundred people. Um, some I would come in as refugees uh, from around the world. Um, many others um, who were either British citizens themselves, people who became British, Europeans who were going through the process or not wanting to go uh, through uh, the process, um, whether it, from various backgrounds, students, families, and others, and found out a number of things. And one of them was that the government doesn't seem to really know what they're doing. Um, now, people seem to uh, know that, but then I found out a bit about why they don't know uh, what they're doing. And it's simple. They've never done any kind of review into what they're doing. Just there's another newspaper saying this is too easy. Oh, I know. We'll go do a headline-grabbing announcement, and that will give everyone some reassurance. And sometimes they even forget to tell people about the headline-grabbing stuff that they plan to do to make you all have confidence that their system is working very well. One example only, which is this wonderful idea I don't mean it's wonderful, um, uh, about uh, reporting your ex-lovers to the home office. I don't know if anyone knows about this form you can fill out. You can download it and print it off from the uh, home office website. Another reason why I don't like uh, the home office. And so this, this, this thought that, you know, how do you crack down on sham marriages? Well, someone got a really good idea that we'll have a form where you can put your name in. You can put the name in of the person you no longer care about. You can submit it to the home office where it will be permanently kept on file and it can be used to deport the person that you don't like anymore. 
And of course, there's a few problems here other than the ethics and the lack of morality. I don't know how it fits in with various codes, but I bet it doesn't come in very well. Um, but one of the problems with this is it doesn't ask for the nationality of the person that you're trying to get rid of. So it seems you could just put down anybody. Um, it doesn't tell you where to send it. Um, so you need to look up yourself. Uh, the office is in Croydon, if people are trying to find this out. There's more than one, but that's the one to send it to. It also doesn't ask for the contact details of yourself, so they can't kind of verify uh, any of the details that you, you put in. And, of course, the bigger point here is they forgot to write a press release. And so they wound up being surprised when a few newspapers I tipped off about this got in touch, saying, oh, we've had this for a while, was the official uh, quote that they have, but they've never actually received any completed forms yet from anyone. That's the good news uh, from, the, uh, from the end of the story. But the, 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 the sadder bit that isn't um, so humorous is along the way talking to people, and the people I talk to in, this, in my book about becoming British, um, these are all people who are trying to play by the rules. People who are in the country not trying to do any, uh, up to any funny business. There are no forged papers. There's no shenanigans. It's all stuff like this going to um, the home office, going to the high commissioner um, in a country in the Commonwealth and saying, I want to take my spouse uh, to the country, being given advice in writing as to what they should do, showing up at Heathrow, and then finding out that the advice that they had been told uh, in writing by the home office via the commissioner was wrong and not being recognized that, no, you are not allowed to stay here in the country. Okay, fine. We've just flown one of the stories I had was people flying in from Indonesia. Okay, well, we'll let you stay in a tourist visa from Indonesia. But then, after arriving in the country and saying, right, well, what we'll do is we'll go talk to an official to see if we can get a spouse visa. We're married. They had a child. They've been married for several years. Husband, a, a British citizen. Uh, then find out, letter in the post afterwards, deportation order. Why? Well, you had accepted temporary residence as a tourist in the country, but your intention was to stay. And this is deemed trying to mislead a border agent, uh, which could see yourself deported and banned uh, from reentry uh, from the UK, typically six, seven years, depending on how good your lawyer is, um, and so on and so forth. So it's, in some sense, I wanted to collect a number of these stories that are often uh, not told. The Daily Mail and other uh, 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 newspapers, if we can call them loosely that, uh, tend to tell you stories about, of another kind about the stories of immigrants. I wanted to tell the stories of other people who, uh, from a variety of backgrounds, some of them like mine, many of them, most of them, not uh, like me, to uh, shed some light about what the rules are that are out there in your name, things that are being done to win the confidence of the British uh, public that I think are, are not having that effect, certainly not on the British public. A lot of people feel the system is broken and they don't like it. They want something else, whether to make it more tough or to go another way. Um, and also it's having a counterproductive effect in another respect, that things like the citizenship test, things like ceremonies and other things that are going on, are meant to not only be um, hurdles that people pass in order to become uh, British citizens, in order to stay in the country, but they're also supposed to be ways in which we ensure that people who do uh, come here and become citizens um, become closer to us, become more integrated, identify more with Britain than, those, than, than otherwise. And one of the, the worrying things that my research found is that a lot of people who are going through the system uh, have the other effect 
They feel like they're being soaked, being taken advantage of. They don't feel more integrated. They feel more abused is not the right word, but it's not a whole uh, a world away uh, from how they feel. Uh, they feel, um, um, instead of getting closer, they feel pulled further apart. And so we have a series of systems being brought up in, in the name of the public that instead of having the effect that they have uh, they're intended to uh, create are actually having a counterproductive effect on the people who are coming here. Problem that these are people who are getting the vote, who are becoming one of us too. And so there's a real problem on many levels that I think needed to be identified. And, and I'm hoping this is one step further into airing uh, some of these problems that people have gone through in Technicolor um, and shedding some light on a problem that, um, uh, that I think very few people know much about. Thank you. So we've seen that whether you are going through official channels or whether you are going through the hands of multiple smugglers, all of whom expect to be paid multiple times, it's a struggle. And part of the struggle is that there is no consistency and that things change all the time. You were a victim, for example, of this age test, which was actually quite a recent introduction in the UK. So you've talked about one of your main concerns being how to establish a safe, secure, and stable way in which people under real duress can find their way to safety, to refuge. I think it's not like when people say it's not rocket science, it's not rocket science to think the smuggling in, in trafficking business exists. It's a multi-billion trillion pound industry. It exists because of states like Britain. It's because of the European Union. So by sending ships back to Turkey and Libya, you don't solve the problem. You actually get people to be exploited. There are stories from sub-Saharan Africans who are coming through Libya are being enslaved and are treated in such inhumane ways. And same in Turkey. Turkey is a, a state which is a very kind of, I feel like it's a very brutal place. I was in prison there for about two weeks. It was a really top place. It was not nothing nothing to do with human rights or democracy as such, but uh, if we have legal and safer routes for people to come to Britain or to claim asylum in a third country, then we will get rid of the middlemen, which is the smugglers and, and, and traffickers who take advantage of your desperations. I mean, my mother paid $8,000 to get me to Europe, and that's a lot of money mm. in Afghanistan. My family had to sell a lot of land and, and uh, other cars and things we had. A lot of people who are struggling to get out of the conflicts and, and wars they can't do it because they don't have the necessary means. But if, we, if Afghans were able, for example, to claim asylum in Pakistan or in Iran to a British embassy or to a European embassy or to anywhere, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a Western government, then people will, will go by safer routes, by air and with, with having some sort of documentations. And the issue we have, the age dispute issue, is that, and now I realize 10 years later, is the reason those five officials who are sitting around the table they couldn't even spell my name right. They had my home office identification card in front of them. They put my date of birth wrong. So my date of birth is 11 of the 10. They put the 11 of the 11th. And basically, not only were they giving me a complete separate date of birth, so they were very careless people, so they didn't really care about my future. And I think everything comes down to cost, mm. and everything comes down to the idea, okay, if we, if we accept him as a 13 years old, then we had to find him school, we had to find him a foster family, we had to find him, and we had to get, grant him status. And I went into a foster family three years later than I arrived, which was a wonderful experience. You know, I got warmth, love in, in a family. And I, not only did they open their house to me, they opened their hearts uh, to me and enabled me to not only... I don't like the idea of integration because integration seems to be a one-way road, but I like the idea of mm. transformation. Mm. I transformed 
from the person that I was five years ago or ten years ago. I learned things and I became part of the, the community and the society because I've been very active in engaging with society. And I think one of the ways you get people to be good citizens is to allow them to give them that opportunities. I mean, I've been here for ten years and I don't have citizenship. And that's very frustrating because... Mm. I can't travel to, I can't travel freely, forget traveling to 175 countries uh, in the world which a British passport, British citizens are entitled to. It's, I explain in the book, you know, it wasn't my fault I wasn't born in Britain or I wasn't mm. born in Europe. Mm. Where you were born is just mm. an accident of birth and you should have the rights and privileges to be able to, I mean, I, I'm not against rules. Okay, you have passports, you have asylum process. Okay, I've been here 10 years and in theory, I should have citizenship, but the five years I spent here was, I had a limited leave to remain, I think called discretionary leave to remain, mm -hmm. which was outside the immigration rule. Mm -hmm. It doesn't count. But I've been saying from day one, when I arrived in 2007, that I was a refugee. I was a genuine refugee. I was, fearing, I was, I was a fear of persecutions and being killed, as defined by the UN uh, Geneva Convention. But the Home Office were not believing me. They didn't even believe that I was an Afghan national. Forget about the age dispute. There were other, other disputes as well. But when they did accept that I was uh, you know, an Afghan and my age was accepted, that was the time they should have accepted that I was a refugee. But they took another five years to do that. And, and that's why now I have a refugee status and I was showing Suzanne my travel document. I traveled to the EU, that's my UN travel document. And it's in a way it gives me freedom to travel. I have made about over 100 visits uh, across Europe. This is my new travel document because the other one got full uh, of stumps. Um, and it's great to be able to travel, but also it, it's a constraint because everywhere I, I went to the state twice, and the officer, okay. uh, the immigration officer at JFK mm -hmm. took me to a room and I was there for about an hour. Uh, he questioned me, he checked my social media pages. Thank God I put, God bless America. So that was, that was there, it helped. Um, and they're like, what is this? They didn't even recognize, they haven't seen one before. And I was coming back from LA just recently to Frankfurt. The German authorities will not give me clearance. And I was there for three hours at the airport saying, well, you're an Afghan, you're living in the UK, you're in the States, you're going to Germany. This doesn't make sense. So it denied my rights to vote. I mean, I have missed three general elections. I've been a student of politics. I've been very involved. I've been a member of the Labour Party for seven years. Mm -hmm. And I have done more than a lot of people who do in their lives for the UK. I represented Britain on an international stage. I don't want to prize myself, but I mean, I've done things which, which should entitle me to, uh, to the rights of voting and to the rights of being able to, to travel freely. I mean, I pay my taxes, I work really, really hard, and I contribute to society here because I'm grateful. I mean, there are a lot of people who, are, who doesn't agree with the point, why should I be grateful, you know? I don't owe anything to anyone, but I do. I think I feel like I'm grateful to the British government, to the state, to the people who enabled me you know, to go through the education system, through schooling, college, university, and now and to the fostering experience and being allowed here. And I, I'm in debt of gratitude and I will do everything I can to give back. But ultimately, I think the idea, the age dispute, as well as the safer and legal routes has to be found. We should give people the benefits of the doubt. I think when you don't believe people, you destroy their future. So if I wasn't able to challenge the Home Office and to challenge social services, I would have been deported. Deportation meant certain, certainly being killed. Because when I went back, I would be really angry. I would have certainly gone and joined the Taliban, fight the British forces in Helmand, and get killed. So there are half of Afghans in Kent who are age disputed. And the government spends millions every year mm. on legal um, fees. Uh, and a lot of, more than 40% asylum seekers who are ages, bitches, they get to win the case in court. And the government loses a lot of our public money. So I think the system is not only ineffective, but it's dehumanizing. Mm. Thank you. Tom, I'm going to turn to the audience now, because I suspect there'll be a lot of questions. And we have, sadly, only 20 minutes remaining. Anyone who would like to ask a question, we have some roving microphones. 
Hi, my name's Laura. I live in Newcastle. Just came down to see you guys today. Um, I'd just like a question on, um, on the expense. What kind of financial support do you receive and how costly is it? Obviously, I'm a British citizen. I haven't had to go through this process and I don't know a lot about it. So, mm -hmm. so um, lots of costs. So uh, the, uh, give you a typical example. Uh, a standard immigration uh, form costs on average about a little over 800 pounds. So the process uh, for the Home Office, their own calculations, how expensive it is for them to process that is about well, under 130 pounds. So you begin to see what's going on. Now that form is just uh, the first of many. So there could be uh, forms for uh, short-term visas, it could be permanent visas. Obviously the longer you want to be here, the more the cost. So before you can just kind of go for your citizenship uh, uh, form, which is about 900 pounds, there's the one before that, which can be over, well over 1,000 pounds. Depending if you're going alone, that'd only be about 1,000 pounds, or with any spouses or children. But before you think that's all the costs, you also have things like that, that add up along the way, things like the citizenship test, which is 50 quid on top of that. So a standard kind of package, which you know, uh, and, and a lot of people fail it. So when you add all these costs up, it can typically be a 2,500 pounds minimum that people spend on up to quite a lot uh, just to apply uh, to, to become a citizen. And can I just add, as Tom said, it's not straightforward. So you, no. the cost is one side. I mean, <laughs> so I, so I have a refugee status. It was given to me in 2013 after much long waited. I got into the University of Manchester, but they say, well, I don't have a status. They will still accept me because I was waiting for my Home Office status. But they want to wanted 14 grand, and I was like, if I had 14,000 pound, I wouldn't be coming to university, okay? <laughs> um, but the system. So uh, right. after when my refugee status expired next year, what happens is normally the Home Office will grant me settlement indefinitely to remain. That is the norm. Mm -hmm. However, the Home Office recently changed the rules, mm -hmm. which is when you, when your refugee status expires, they will look at a thing called safe return review. So they will review every person who are given refugee status and see if they still need protection. And the problem with that is it creates so much uncertainty and instability in people's lives because you can't plan future, you can't mm. get a job, employees will be thinking, what's gonna to happen to you? University will think, okay, if we allowed him, then he will not be here five years later. On one hand, the home office want people to be integrated, and on the other hand, the home office doesn't really want people to be integrated and to become part of society. Mm. And getting a refugee status is really hard. I mean, there are people who wait 15 years. Mm. There, I have seen friends who wait 10, 12 years to get it, uh, and I had to wait five years to get it. So now, Next year, I'm, my future is kind of uncertain as to what's going to happen. So I have already applied for the settlement a year early. Thanks to the Home Office, they kind of accepted my application due to special circumstances. And that was like 18 pages of application, and, and it was really long and very difficult. So once I get the settlement, I had to wait another year or so before I can apply for citizenship. The process is really long. It just drags on. And then that is, if you're lucky, you will get it at the end. And if you're not, you probably, you know, you will still be waiting. So, Yeah. Just wanted to make that point. It was, it you have to make a list of all those countries you go to as well for the list of all your dates in and out, <laughs> which is easier said than done. If anyone goes to the Republic of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, where I used to live, they'll stamp you going in, but Britain doesn't stamp you coming out. That's the issue. Uh, yeah, so I had to kind of just smile and tell the border agent, no, I really was only there for this many days. <laughs> um, I hope they believe me. They have no record. Thank you. Any more questions? Hi, um, I'm Craig, a third-year um, student. Um, I've just set up a new student group called Model Westminster Society, aims to empower student voice in social policy making. 
and we've just um, submitted some evidence to the House of Lords Committee on Citizenship mm. and Civic Engagement. And the, the title of your book, Tom, is uh, it's really interesting, really compelling. Mm -hmm. so, so my question for, for both of you is how do you define becoming or being British? What, what are the, the core cultural values? Are they the same or are there different areas of, of being British? Well, if I can, I mean, so yeah, becoming British. So, what does that kind of mean? I will, uh, for for one, uh, to let the cat partly out of the bag. I don't think it's answering a quiz. Uh, so, <laughs> so for example, um, you know, knowing who was the fifth and sixth wives of Henry VIII, I don't think, which currently is on the official practice test, I don't think that matters. I think uh, not knowing that Sekhtin Mohammed set up the first curry house, the Hindu stained coffee house on George Street, London, after he eloped with his Irish wife. Uh, to London. I don't think that should, from Bengal, I don't think that should count for British citizenship. So I think, and, and, and that the London Eye is 443, uh, 443 feet uh, high, I don't think that should matter uh, for being British. These are all things that are there and on the test. What I would say is probably closer to the truth is goes back to what happened the first time around when Gordon Brown and company were looking at this. We were talking a little bit about uh, poor old Gordon, uh, earlier before the show started. And so there was this thought about what does it mean to be British? Mm -hmm. And so he did the, you know, uh, so he called up uh, the Home Secretary, David Blunkett, you go out, sort this out. And he did what Home Secretaries do in that situation, called up his old university tutor, who was called Sir Bernard Crick, and said, you sort it out. And there was a review that went around the country trying to figure out what it meant to be British. And the very uh, short version of this was, when they went to different parts of Britain to figure this out, people were telling them that Britishness meant something specific about that region that made them not only different from the French, but made them different from the Welsh and the Scots and the Irish and the Teesiders. I could keep going, but things like that. And so what they did is they came away from it and thought, well, actually, to become British is to have certain types of universal values that could be realized anywhere but there could be a different way that we do that here. So for example, equality, democracy, fair play, these are things that you could have in France and Germany and elsewhere, maybe even the United States, and probably should have in those countries and others. North Korea, everywhere should have these kinds of things. What democracy looks like, and now you do equality, could look different in Britain than other places without that being a particular problem per se for quality or democracy. Parliamentary democracy is not necessarily better than a presidential system. As such, we can get into that uh, later, students of politics. Um, but uh, come with these universal values and then some information about how things are in a general way on the ground. I think that that kind of uh, approach is probably uh, the better way of thinking about to, uh, what it means to become British, frankly, to be any good citizen. Is, is the way forward. I think for me, Britishness or being British is not defined by a piece of paper. It shouldn't be. I mean, in theoretical sense, that is. But I think Britishness for me is about the value of tolerance, the principles of democracy and acceptance. And I think we live in a multicultural society. We're a very diverse place. That says a lot about Britain. And I think for me, it's about contribution. It's about opportunities, being able to be treated fairly, not being discriminated against, and people not being racist to you. So things that are universally accepted in our good. And I think a lot of people do believe across the world when they want to come to Britain, they think Britain is a place of equality and justice and, and fairness. To an extent that is true, there's a lot, lot of room for improvement, but I think we are much better than a lot of places across the world. So for me, it shouldn't just 
be defined by a, a passport or by a citizenship test. I feel like even though I feel British, even though I don't have citizenship, and I know for a fact when I get my citizenship, there will be people still disagrees with me being British. So I, I doesn't bother me what people think. I, I for me, it's this is my second home, and I will do everything I can to to contribute to it and to to help and support it and to be a good ambassador for Britain. It's a fascinating thing, if I can just add a, a mm-hmm. final thought, uh, that uh, when it comes to defining being British or being English, Welsh, Scots, other types of things, that one of the things you find of people who are migrants or people who are non-white, wherever they are in the UK, whatever generation they are, tend to identify more as British than the other identities. Mm-hmm. And British, to, to be British, of course, originally goes back to 1707 mm-hmm. with the Union of Scotland and England. <laughs> Wales is sadly already part of all that. We're not going to go there. And in 1707, to be a full subject, they didn't have citizenship then at the time, English was not the only language that was officially recognized. So to be a full citizen now, you have lots of comments about English and knowing English and English language and the importance there. But it wasn't true in the beginning. Um, Welsh and Scots Gaelic and others were. So the notion of what what it means to be British has changed since the beginning. It was more pan-national from the very beginning, and, and that's all a, 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 a residue that continues for many of us afterwards. And one of the things you point out in your book, of course, Tom, is the situation under the British Empire. Mm. Well, under the British Empire, uh, you have something fascinating, which is now you had a lot. You have a lot of people uh, during the referendum. Do you remember that uh, the one that happened around here, not the one north of the border, um, about this Brexit thing? Um, complaining about freedom of movement and that, uh, and that you know, people could just kind of unlimited and unrestricted travel back and forth. Of course, the only place that really happened on a wide, uh, super wide scale was the British Empire, where people were able to go back and forth. And not even 100 years ago, you had a passport uh, that everyone who was a member of the empire, wherever they were in the empire, whether it be South Africa, whether it be uh, uh, Malaysia, whether it be in Britain, had the same passport. It didn't matter if they spoke Welsh. It didn't matter if they were a Methodist or Muslim. Um, they all had the citizen of the UK and colonies passport that gave unrestricted travel rights uh, to set up your home, marry whoever, go wherever you want at that time. Fast forward, uh, this is uh, around the time of the World Wars. Uh, fast forward to uh, now, and most of the nationalities that come to Britain today, less than 100 years ago, had unrestricted rights of full citizenship that were since then stripped away and terminated. So uh, so things have changed an awful lot. And again, uh, Britain has come to citizenship a bit late. What it means to become British once upon a time was very cosmopolitan. It was the world. The sun didn't set on who was considered to be part of British. We were all subjects of his or her majesty, depending on when you were here. Um, but, uh, but yeah, as we've tried to, the countries try to catch up, the restrictions have uh, lagged behind and has done a very bad job of catching up as well. Thank you. I think we have time for one or two more questions. Just a simple question. I'm out of date. I mean, there are thousands of Americans working in British universities. Why did your employer suddenly require it? Because you were in a permanent post or what? I, I was uh, short. This is a short one. I was in a permanent post, but uh, but having a permanent job didn't mean I had permanent immigration. Uh, so I had a temporary visa 
uh, that I was uh, given. And then when that was at the end, at the, it was a five-year visa. At the end of that five-year term, uh, the employer was very happy to keep me on. Indeed, I was, for those who cared, but then left anyway. Um, so they, 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 they had upset me. Um, but uh, they allowed it, you know, I was kept in my post anyway, but they refused to help me because it was, the issue here was this. On a short-term visa, I am tied to my employer. On a permanent residency, mm -hmm. I could go anywhere. And they did not want to facilitate my going anywhere. I was going to do that all off my own, uh, off my own uh, power. So uh, now that I'm dean of the, of the law school, I'm empowered to not follow those rules. I do write letters and I do support my colleagues, uh, you, know, uh, you know, learn from the mistakes of others. Brilliant. Thank, thank you. So you talk about making a change so we have a fair system that's consistent and humane. Um, what do you think is the most important way of doing this? Is it targeting a certain group of people, someone specific, or does it need to be something that's foundational? Mm. Great, thank you for your question. I think I travel across the UK and I've been lucky to, to travel to almost every city in town and to give talks, schools or universities. And I think whenever I talk to audience, they're very sympathetic. They already show solidarity with refugees, which is great. But a lot of the time they, they tell me or they write to me or they talk to me saying, well, we kind of agree with you. We did agree with you. But after listening to you or reading your book, we're going to take some sort of action. We'll write to our MP saying we need to do more. For example, the Dubs Amendment was a big mm -hmm. thing for the UK. There were 100,000 children who came to Europe unaccompanied. Britain was supposed to take 3,000, which is a very small percentage. Mm -hmm. well, we didn't even do that. We did take a U-turn on it. I think it's a shame that Britain is a place, I mean, it's, it's best when it leads in humanitarian crisis, when it actually encourages others along the way. Yes. Britain gives a lot of money to uh, countries who are hosting refugees more than any other country, but it's still not enough. So I, what I want is I want attitudes to change. I want people to be better informed and educated about what it is. I mean, not everyone is coming to Britain. Not everyone is here. Yes, we are a small island. I'm not saying in any way that we should take everyone in, but what I'm saying is we can take somebody in. We can play our fair share across with our European partners and across the world. And when the UK Prime Minister goes to the UN or when she goes to a humanitarian summit, she should not wash up her hands up responsibility, saying, oh, we will not take any. We will build fences in Cali. I mean, we built fences and walls in Cali before Trump took, mm -hmm. put up one. So mm -hmm. I want the, the public opinion to change and to, to be more active in engaging with their policymakers and decision makers, saying, well, this is not right. There are local councils around Britain, local authorities, who doesn't have even one refugee. And they could actually, there are schools in the UK who will do with some more children mm -hmm. and some more people. But why should certain areas take all the burden? For example, Kent, have, Kent is really struggling with people. And the home is trying to have a dispersal system where other local authorities take in children. But the, the problem is, we were discussing this before, local authorities are unwilling to take in refugees because of cuts and also because if you are an asylum seeker in care of a local authority, the government pays you less if you're a British citizen in, in care. So there's a discrimination in, in actually systematic and state racism in the system of care for children. So what I want, I just want a combination of so many different things, but ultimately what I want is a, a humane and compassionate response to the refugee crisis. And I think people, in my experience in Britain, are willing, not only willing to support refugees, but actually willing to host them in their countries, I mean, in their homes. And I think it's the government who is lacking a political response in not utilizing on the goodwill of the people. And I think government... And politicians need to explain to people, like in Germany, like in Canada, they have done somewhat better than us, to explain to people what are we doing and how many are we taking, why are we taking them, and we should do everything we can to end wars and conflicts or at least not participate in it. I mean, I would just say as a, as a final thought, um, you have uh, more um, asylum seekers waiting for a decision on their cases per 100 people sitting in Middlesbrough 
in Stockton over the road. Uh, in David Cameron's constituency and his then immigration minister, James Brokenshire's constituency, they had a grand total of no uh, person waiting to have any claim heard because there was no place uh, offered because uh, they didn't want them there, it would seem. I think what you do is, is you say, look, um, there's, you know, just saying, you know, academic finds inconsistency doesn't like test. Uh, doesn't <laughs> going to get you very far. But what you can do is say that this test done in people's names should shame them. Um, it's un-British, and it's unfair, um, and it's not right. Uh, and give that some type of exposure. If we don't like what the newspapers and the television say, then we get ourselves in the newspapers, and we get ourselves on the television, and we challenge those views, uh, and we let the other side be heard. If we think, well, the other side of all these books about why there's too many migrants here, we need to stop this, and it's all terrible, well, then you write books, and you, mm -hmm. you try to raise consciousness that way. There's multiple things. It's not just about uh, educating. Maybe the most important thing we can do is in these kind of daily conversations with each other in raising consciousness. I got a lot further uh, during uh, one of the election uh, campaign trails talking to a family wondering why there was no uh, uh, points-based immigration system and that what a wonderful thing that would be and why wouldn't this political party support it when I highlighted, well, we've had one for over eight years. And they saw, they went online and I sat there and we went on their iPads and they saw, that, oh, this is actually here and went through and said, you know what? We wouldn't be allowed in under these rules. That was a lot better than telling people they need to know more facts yeah. or the things are inconsistent or I don't like something. Kind of have that change of consciousness come from uh, the public themselves. And, and it's at moments like these, I hope that we go some small step towards that much larger goal. Please, can you just join me in thanking our two authors and thanking yourself? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.